Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline at ASAP 17 in Washington, D.C. And interestingly, the first time that this guest and I talked was at a meeting here in Washington, D.C., but it was Leadership and Advocacy Conference back about a year and a half ago or so, actually right as we were starting to get into the ASAP Frontline, trying to get things out every single week. And so we, we knocked out a couple of podcasts on the no acts and um, and, and those medications, the oral anti-platelet uh, uh, with anticoagulation considerations and trying to separate those things and get some more clarity when it comes to this class of medications that are now becoming huge when it comes to uh, emergency medicine and not only patients that we will likely be starting on these medications, but patients that when they come into the emergency department will be on these types of medications. And today I wanted to talk about trying to dig a little bit deeper, um, talking about atrial fibrillation, talking about VTE, which, what are my choices going to be? How do we decide? What are the considerations? What are the education, the important education aspects of things? And even getting into things of uh, helping the patient in terms of payment and how to get the medications themselves, because we are very quick to write medications for patients, but not always so quick to consider whether they can actually get the medications or take take the medications, but because because remember, the medication we write does no good if it's still at the pharmacy. So we want to talk about that. And so I'm joined by Dr. Jim Williams, uh, Texas emergency uh, physician. Um, so probably not ready for the cooler weather we're about to have here over the next day or so, but I hope you'll survive. You should be okay. But we've talked to him before um, through ASEP, a very, uh, very um, motivated and influential person within the college, working very hard, and this is one of his passions. And so I wanted to talk to him today about this topic. So first, let's break this down into the categories of consideration for NOACs versus some of the other agents that we've used classically. Um, and let's just start off with atrial fibrillation versus VTE and those considerations. Yeah, well, thanks, first of all, for, for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Um, it is a big category, so I sort of break it down into AFib, DVT, PE, because there are two different considerations, both how you start, what agent you start, um, and just the general comorbidities. They really are two different populations. So I sort of break it down into the AFib. They're the older population. Typically, they have significant comorbidities, um, and we can talk about risk stratifying those patients. And then we, we also have DVT-PEs, and those typically are younger patients. Um, it's sort of funny because walking around here, there's no way we're going to get a DVT. You have to walk a country mile just to get from one booth to the exhibit hall and, and the lectures. But anyway, there are two different populations, and because of that, there are two different types of medications that we use. So let's talk about that. Um, I, I see this all the time. We have specialty items in, you know, we'll have coupons. You know what we see? We often see a couple of these NOACs that are coming in um, with their wares uh, in the emergency department. And, you know, a lot of times the consideration may be, well, which one's got a coupon that I can get for the patient to get a cheaper medication? But talk to me about some of those differences in the medications when it comes to considerations of that decision between atrial fibrillation or DVT PE. I mean, how am I, how is the emergency physician out there, boots on the ground, going to decide potentially what they're going to write for these patients? Yeah. So it's, they are two different patient populations, and that's the exact thing. So if somebody comes in and they're a, a new onset AFib, what am I going to use? Or even if they're a recurrent AFib and they're not um, on an agent? 
So typically I risk stratify the patient for an AFib. <clears throat> and you can use something called a CHADS-VAS2 score to see what is their risk of having a stroke. And it is all about reducing the risk of stroke long-term. And the CHADS-VAS2 looks at congestive heart failure, um, their age, do they have renal dysfunction, their comorbidities, and it assigns a numeric score and gives you a relative risk of their stroke in the long-term setting. So if it's more than two, two or more than two, that's a patient in whom anticoagulation is appropriate. So then you look at, well, what am I going to use? Because there's there's several agents out there. So let me go a little bit historically. We'll talk about Coumadin. That's been around since 48. And uh, I think people are comfortable with it, but it has significant shortcomings, right? You have to check the INR. Even in really stable studies, 50% of the patients are not even in a therapeutic window. There are multiple um, interactions with medications. Somebody comes in with a flu, they're given Levaquin, because that works for the flu, of course. Um, You know, it throws their INR up, they come in and they have a bleed. So I think that's really more the historical point. The, the NOACs, it used to be novel oral anticoagulants or non-oral vitamin K agonists. They've been around now for five to six years, and there are four of them on the market. And so I think that's the group of medications that most of the patients are going to be started on. There are some indications where they can't use that. They will still use Coumadin, but by and large, because of the safety of those products, that's going to be the go-to med. So then the question is, how do I decide which one is good for my patient who's sitting in front of me? Well, I think first and foremost of the four, there was one, um, Pradaxer, uh, Dabigatran, which was really shown to have superiority. The others were non-inferiority studies, and that was for the primary outcome of looking at stroke reduction in the setting of a non-valve AFib. So the non-valve AFib means it's, um, they could have trace MR, that's non-valve AFib. Um, but if they have significant uh, valvular dysfunction, um, then that would not be a, a drug for those patients. The majority of patients are, however, non-valve AFib. So you have to consider some of the comorbidities, right? Because this is typically an older population. If they have a CHADS-VAS2 of two or more, they typically have renal dysfunction, they have the age, they have congestive failure. So you have to look at what the renal function is, and primarily because that's one of the differentiators of the four medications on the market. So one is um, primarily renally excreted, and the other three are anywhere from generally about a third renally excreted. So if somebody has renal dysfunction, that's not going to be one for dabigatran because that's primarily renally excreted. However, you balance that then against the efficacy because if, it is, if a patient has normal renal function, then that would actually be the perfect patient for dabigatran because you know it's going to be safe for them and it has superiority in reducing the, um, the primary endpoint. So that's sort of my cut point. I look at patients, if they're there for AFib, do they have normal renal function? If not, then you have three others, whether it's Xarelto, Eliquis, or Cervesa. Well, Cervesa has not been on the market all that long. Um, it has the least amount of data, I think, on their least time experience, certainly. So that puts you into the other two groups. And so when you look at Eliquis versus Xarelto, there are pluses and minuses, and that's where you really get into nuances of the different medications. I think the difference really is one is Q-Day, the other is BID dosing. And so you look at some of the patients, what their preferences are, um, and that's almost a dealer's choice. There's no definitive data. Well, one of the things that makes it really tough is that there's no head-to-head study of any of these medications. They all have their own individual study. They all have subtle differences in what the definitions of bleeds are, subtle differences in endpoints, and certainly differences in their patient populations and comorbidities. And so you can't truly do a head-to-head trial, or pardon me, you can't extrapolate data because there hasn't been a head-to-head trial 
But I think by and large, that's a good thumbnail footprint about how you select which agent for that AFib population. All right, so AFib. So that's a that is an interesting because we always hear about that. Even they even push that to the patients, non-valvular AFib, invalvular AFib. So let's talk about that patient. I mean, we we were talking about um, you know we have an aging population, but coming up, we're going to have a significant. I mean, whether it's the elderly population that seems to be an aortic valve dumpster fire. I mean, every one of them's got some sort of. I think I think the the trileaflet valve wasn't invented in human beings until it seems like at least the 50s or 60s. And but also we're going to have this population of patients from this opioid epidemic that are going to have valvular disease, whether it's a replacement or or some damage because of infective endocarditis. They're going to start having experience with that. How does that change things for me when we're talking about when we're talking about uh, valvular atrial fibrillation? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting point about the population and what might be coming with the opioid epidemics and the IV use and the endocarditis. So that sort of breaks it down into two groups. I can say with the patients who have a mechanical valve that it's not indicated because some of the studies have shown that those patients are at a higher risk of bleed. There aren't any studies specifically for the bioprosthetic valves, but I could say off-label and um, anecdotally that a lot of patients are on these medications. And that's where you just get into a risk-benefit analysis. So if you know that it's, it's certainly efficacious, and historically at least, albeit anecdotally, it's still safe, um, particularly in the setting of decreasing intracranial bleeds, that's where I think they have a place in those groups. But um, the thing that I think really helps it, particularly because these are older patients, we think about they're falling, you know, they're, they're here for, maybe they're here for the fall, and then the AFib was just picked up, or they're already on an anticoagulant. What do I do? Well, it's not necessarily a contraindication to anticoagulating those patients, because when you look at the risk stratifications of their risk for a stroke um, in the setting of non-valve AFib versus a bleed from a fall, you'll find that they have to have hundreds of falls before that would even match their risk of having a stroke, which says you should go ahead and anticoagulate those patients. And so um, that's, that's the main consideration. The non-valve AFib, again, it's the difference of if they, if they have non-valve, that's easy. But if it's a mechanical valve, you really shouldn't do it because that's a higher risk of bleed. If it's a bioprosthetic, it's off-label. But anecdotally, I've seen it done. And because you have a known significant decreased rate of intracranial bleeds, that's a reasonable population. But then one of the other things is when you look at the older population, if they have heart failure, they have their coronary artery disease, what else are they on? They're all on antiplatelets. And, and so that's a significant consideration. And then also look at what the drug-to-drug interactions are. And so those are two more reasons that I think the Coumadin just really can't hold a candle to the novel agents or the non-vitamin, non-oral vitamin K agents. Um, they don't have the drug-to-drug interactions the way that Coumadin does. So that significantly changes the... Um, I think the, the analysis of what what agent you're going to use. You mentioned the some of the antiplatelet, uh, mainly Plavix, being the one that we'll see on a pretty frequent basis, uh, especially after you know coronary artery disease patients, uh, after angioplasty, um, PCI, that sort of thing. And I, I completely agree. I I really kind of get frustrated now when I see somebody on warfarin uh, because of they're almost always out of range. It's either way too high, you know, that elderly patient that's coming in that I'm going to get home otherwise, but then they mention, oh, my stool is dark. And then you get, you know, you get their INR and it's six or eight. And, you know, this is a person that's got a daily struggle with gravity. You know, it seems like they can't get out of the bed without a little gravitational help to the floor. 
And, you know, so they're always coming into the ER at 4 a.m. And it complicates your disposition. And, you know, so I'm not a fan. I, I, I really don't like, I mean, I know it still has a role. I mean, it's, it's of course, the cost is, is part of it. But, you know, it has a role. But you're right. There is so much that can be can jack up the numbers, you know, whether it's whether it's somebody who's been feeling sick for a couple of weeks, had diarrhea and hasn't been able to eat or drink anything, is very dehydrated, or the person who's on medications or decides to get a little wonky with their diet and try some things that jack up the numbers. And so I feel like those, the thing with the NOAX is that more predictable uh, levels, we don't have to monitor that type of thing. And we'll get to the reversal here in a little bit, because that's actually what we talked about a little bit last year with some of those reversals and things that were on the horizon. But talk to me a little bit. As somebody who does, who sees a lot of heart things, and I'm sure folks out there see a lot of heart things, a lot of these patients on Plavix, and then you have these other, uh, the NOACs getting involved. So we have coronary artery disease. We may have AFib. We may have a history of PE or DVT. Where do we balance these things, and how are they going to play together? And, you know, if somebody is on Plavix, coronary artery disease, they've had their stents. Now they're coming into the emergency room with AFib. Um, or they've had a significant TIA or a CBA that we've dealt with uh, that's non-hemorrhagic or somebody who's, let's just even, you know, uh, talk about those folks that um, have got the history of clots, um, you know, cancer, you know, the huge issue. I think the scourge of our generation is going to be uh, the, the amount of cancer that we deal with and the number, and of course that increases that risk of uh, VTE. So let's talk talk to me a little bit about that. And I know this is a curveball question because uh, it's not something we talked about before, but to me and something I see is Plavix versus, you know, you got Warfarin and Plavix and you got the NOAX and you have, how are we all going to play together? And when do we say no? And when do we say yes? And, and when do we decide one over the other versus putting things together? So that, that's really a great question. And I love your, uh, your characterization of some of the patients, not that we ever have any of these things, but the, the, uh, dumpster trash kind of stuff that happens. Yeah. They can be uh, challenging. So to sort of break it down, you're exactly right. It's, it's funny because I talk to the surgeons about this a lot because they just clump it all into one group as they're all bad. But you really have to tease it out into antiplatelets and anticoagulants. And you have to be very specific when you're talking to the patients, too, when you ask, are you on any blood thinners? Because they, they really don't know the difference. So, you know, basically it's aspirin, what dose, baby dose or full dose? Are you on an antiplatelet, whether it's Plavix, Berlinta, or Effiant? or an anticoagulant. Are you taking Lovenox because you might be a cancer patient? Is it Coumadin, Predaxa, Eliquis, Xarelto, or Cervasa? So for the patients who have coronary disease, oftentimes they're on double uh, therapy, okay? So that's gonna be the aspirin Plavix or the aspirin Berlinta or Effian. What makes it challenging is when they then have the AFib and they need to be anticoagulated. So that would be triple therapy. Well, the safety is the thing that's concerning. We know that it can minimize, obviously, an ischemic event, but the challenge is that they have a significantly higher risk of bleed. So I think as we've gained more experience of this, one of the things that's come out is to say, you know, we really don't have to maintain triple therapy um, long-term because we don't get the benefit with the risk that we're seeing. And so typically what happens is that if somebody does have the indication, let's say it's non-valve AFib, and they have coronary disease, clearly they have an indication for treating both. The difference in how you manage that patient is basically the time from their stent. So if somebody just had a stent last week and they're coming in, they do need to be on triple therapy and maintain that. However, 
what we found is that if somebody has had a stent maybe three to six months ago, and there's not hard science about this, but this seems to be a general consensus, if the stent has been more than three months ago, you can stop the antiplatelet agent. So you would continue the aspirin, although that's typically an antiplatelet agent. You, you can stop the Plavix or Belinta or Effiant, and then go ahead and start them on the anticoagulant. So you get the benefit of minimizing an ischemic event, but you also decrease the risk of a bleed. So the other thing that's been really cool is that now this market has started to extend into the coronary disease where some of the uh, makers are looking at, well, does um, Xarelto, does uh, Pradaxa, does Eliquis have a role in coronary disease? And so they're looking exactly that. How can I decrease my risk of a thrombotic event or an ischemic event as, as well as decrease the risk of bleed? So they actually are looking at using the novel or non-oral vitamin K agents prophylactically for coronary disease as well. So that's going to be another indication in the horizon. So let's talk a little bit about VTE. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about atrial fibrillation, but VTE, so our DVTs and PEs are a different bear. So jump into those when it comes to our anticoagulation strategies. Yeah. Well, thanks. So this is a really um, easy question because these, these are our friends. So no longer do we really have to admit patients, certainly not on a heparin drip to transition, don't have to admit them for Lovenox, certainly. And the patients like it because they don't have to stay on uh, an injectable. You can start them on one of the uh, agents and just send them home, basically. The difference, however, is twofold. One, it's a significantly different population. So typically, they're younger. They don't have the comorbidities, which also makes it easier to let them go home. But also, the way the uh, package insert and labeling goes for some of the agents uh, changes how you can use that. So as an example, for dabigatran or Pradaxa, they have to be on parenteral therapy for five to 10 days prior to initiation of dabigatran or Pradaxa for the DVTPE. So you really can't just give them a Pradaxa and let them go home. That would be off-label. The others, however, you can start them immediately. Now, they all have similar pharmacokinetics, so potentially you could, but it'd be off-label. Um, but that's where I think Eliquis and Zarelto are so great because we don't have to bother the hospitalist. They love it. We, we diagnose it. We give them the pill. Within two hours, they're at peak plasma concentration, and they can go home. And the patients like it. They don't have to shoot themselves with, uh, with Lovenox. And then they have the added benefit of safety and decreasing uh, intracranial bleeds. So the same benefits that you get in the safety profile in that AFib population, those carry over into the DVTPE population. The other thing that we, um, I'll touch on just really briefly, the DVT, that's an easy one, right? That's, I don't think anybody has any uh, challenge about sending those patients home on day one, or at least they shouldn't. That's really, I think, the standard now. But even now, um, in the past four years, frankly, we've been moving into discharging uh, low-risk pulmonary embolism patients as well because you realize if, if I'm getting them at peak plasma concentration in two hours, um, they're going home, why would I have them stay in a hospital bed and actually increase their risk of a thrombotic event? So those are an interesting patients. And you can use a risk stratification called PESI, P-E-S-I, to assess are they a high risk or a low risk? And if they're a low risk, certainly outpatient therapy with one of these agents is certainly a, a great option. Finally, let's talk about, um, as we get close to time here, let's talk about where we are right now with, um, uh, with, uh, with some of the reversals. Some things have changed, medication released since we last talked. Um, there's been, there was some hope, but even then it was a tempered hope uh, in terms of reversal. And now I think some of the numbers are showing that even the reversal is not fantastic. 
for this. And I think that's one of the apprehensions and fears. Oh, and before I get to that, make sure that if you're doing VTE, I mean, uh, DVT, uh, and even discharging those low-risk PEs from your department and actually talking with the folks, many times they'll have the um, the early coupons, the starter kits and things available. Make sure you write that full month because the coverage is for a month, no matter how many of those pills you, you write. So, um, for as just say the example for the Eliquis is a is 74 tablets for that first month, in order to get them dosed up, um, getting them on level, and then and then the numbers to get you f- uh, through those 30 days. So where are we right now with reversal? Because that's a big concern that people have. I'm starting this. Somebody's going to come in. They have maybe they got some bleed. that's not unstable, but well, let's just talk about an unstable bleed. We'll say head bleed. And what are we? Where are we with reversal on these on these agents at this point? So I think you hit it um, right on the head, um, the puns intended. So you basically risk stratify the patients. Are they low risk, high risk, or somewhere in between? Um, So the high risk, the head bleed, fortunately, that happens in a minority of patients if you look at all comers. Um, For the low risk or nuisance bleeds, you really don't have to do anything. You don't even have to hold a dose of therapy. You can just watch it. The moderate risk bleed, that would be maybe a nosebleed or a, a melanoma, but not hemodynamically significant. You could hold a dose of medication and just watch it. Again, because these are fast on, fast off medications. The high risk is what everybody's worried about, but you know, in all honesty, it happens so rarely. So as an example, in these studies, the risk is anywhere from say 1.2 to 3.5% of a bleed, and that's a major GI bleed. The intracranial bleeds is typically less than 2%. So the incidence is really low. But bottom line is you support them um, with preload and optimize their renal function, particularly if it's one that's renally excreted. Um, FFP really doesn't help so much. That just gives them increased volume. Um, these patients have congestive heart failure, so obviously that can be a challenge for those patients. But primarily, um, because they're fast on, fast off, you can wait them out. For a head bleed, the um, option, I think, are two. If it's Pradaxa, you can give them Praxbind. And that's really cool because it's an antibody that binds specifically to the molecule, and it takes it out within two to five minutes. Two to five minutes, it's completely out. So it doesn't make them prothrombotic, but it just puts them to their pre-treatment level. The challenge is also they can be on antiplatelets as well. So if the patient is on an antiplatelet, um, counterintuitively, platelets really don't help. In fact, that can hurt patients. But uh, DDAVP is something that you can help um, to, to change the balance uh, for the platelets. For the other agents that don't yet have a reversal, and those are the factor 10A agents, um, you can use one thing that's off-label, and that's Kcentra. And it's not really a replacement, but what it does is basically replete the factors and try to change the balance so that you can now start a, a, a clot with a coagulation cascade. But beyond that, um, Profil 9 is typically, that was tried, but that can be prothrombotic, so that's generally not used. Um, but primarily, it's optimize the patient, look at the other agents, uh, DDAVP for antiplatelets, and Kcentra for replacement factors, optimize their preload with uh, fluids and make sure the renal function is good to go, and then all the other supportive measures you would do for those patients. Talking with uh, Dr. Jim Williams, and MSDO, FACEP, a lot of different things there. Emergency Medicine Covenant Medical Center, clinical assistant professor at Texas Tech University Medical School and healthcare, uh, HSC Healthcare Consulting. And um, I want to announce and, and mention here, um, there's a program that's coming out in terms of education. We like to send out education and give opportunities. And there is an opportunity that Bristol Myers Squibb and Pfizer awarded PCNA and ASEP um, 
awarded to collaborate to develop and present a CME or CNE program to provide health care providers with comprehensive team-based educational approach to VTE care to minimize recurrence of VTE and improve anticoagulation therapy adherence. And that's really the keys that we talk about is, for one, us get the, getting them on the right medications, and then two, getting them the opportunities. And as I always tell my uh, patients, one, we have, there are still a lot of the 30-day trials, that kicker, that starter kit things that are available for many of the medications. Uh, two is um, looking around, searching around, and seeing what's available out there. And then uh, three is is... Um, is there's a lot of programs that are available through these companies to uh, to help as well. Yeah, so exactly. I just had to chuckle when you said patients didn't fill their prescriptions. You really have that. I've never come across that. That's amazing. So you're right. The paper doesn't help. They got to fill it. But the companies have done a great job, um, and they all have a, a starter kit effectively. So uh, with Zarelto, there's um, a care package. Uh, Eloquis has 360 support, uh, and then there's a savings card also. So. All these companies, I think, have recognized there is a challenge. Um, they got to get the medications, and they've really helped us help our patients. So that at 3 o'clock in the morning, I can give a patient a pill and give them a card, and they can indeed go home. Dr. Jim Williams, wonderful conversation once again, our resident ASEP expert on all things anticoagulation. And uh, so I'm sure we'll be back with you in about a year or so to talk about what's new and exciting and what has changed on the horizon. Um, as for me, feel free to contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, or at everydaymed on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. Frontline.